0: You're listening to The Jewish Truth
1: Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for listening. This past Thursday night, a huge rally. A couple of hundred thousand Jews came to support the government and the judicial reforms, to tell Netanyahu not to back down, to go through with it, and not to be intimidated by the left. And then the left retaliated with their own huge rally. A day later to protest the judicial reforms. And what I wanted to talk about regarding this is that it seems that when the national camp has these huge rallies, they always get compliments from the press. The leftist media talks about their exemplary behavior, how they conducted themselves so well. And Bibi is so proud of them for acting with such a strain, unlike the crazy violent demonstrations of the left in Tel Aviv. We religious Jews, we nationalist Jews, We're so restrained and we conduct ourselves so gentlemanly. No violence, no threats. And we all come back from these demonstrations on a high. What unity amongst the people. What a nice warm and fuzzy feeling we had all being together for this common goal. What love and brotherhood between the people. And I'm starting to think that the goal of these demonstrations of the nationalist camp is so they can write the next day how wonderful we were. What a nice community the nationalist camp, how well behaved, what exemplary behavior. Now, is that what we're striving for? I thought we're trying to push for those judicial reforms. And I never heard of any goal that was achieved by nice demonstrations. Just look at the Arabs and their Intifada and the Havdil in the struggle of the Soviet Jewry. It was only when the JDL started using more violent tactics that people became aware of the problem of Soviet Jewry. The nice, peaceful demonstrations weren't working. And any kind of history shows that it's the ones who do the balagan, you know, the ones who, the ones who block the streets, the ones who threaten. Look what the left achieved with their demonstrations, which were not so nice. They threatened, they blocked the streets, they were violent, they threatened to burn the house down. That's why Bibi relented to them. That's why he froze the whole issue of judicial reforms, because he was afraid of them. You saw what they're liable to do. That's how you get things done. If you're just going to be nice at demonstrations, no matter how many people you have, okay, they'll say nice things about you, but you don't present a threat. So if BBC's on one side, a violent, raging left that's threatening to burn the house down, and the other side he sees nice people who he knows won't do anything, of course he's going to appease the bad guys. The bad guys always win. The ones who threaten violence always wins. Violence works. And nice, peaceful demonstrations, they don't. So we'll get all the compliments from the leftist media and from Bibi himself. What wonderful people we are. And because he knows we're like that, then he also knows he has nothing to lose by giving us the screws and betraying us and going to the other side. Because the other side, they're crazy. They're liable to do who knows what. So those are the ones he's going to appease in the end and not the nice, peaceful demonstrators. And it doesn't matter how many show up. I really do think that we have this complex of always proving how civilized we are. That is, we're trying to undo the narrative against us that we're these unhinged radicals and we want to shed that image. So, And so you see in all the haspara, the effort to portray the settlers as just you know, normal, common, beautiful people. And in that way, somehow, world opinion won't be so against us. But did you ever think that maybe the best PR is that they really do think that we're crazy? I mean, it definitely works on the Arabs. The fact is the Arabs are more frightened of the settlers than they are of the IDF. And that's a fact because the Arabs, they're not afraid of the IDF anymore. They know the soldiers' hands are tied. They've become, you know, chocolate soldiers. But when they see a settler from Yitzhar with long pace, they run. So the best deterrent we have is that they think we're nuts. It's not just the Arabs. Let leaders like Bibi know that he has something to lose if he disses the half a million people who marched in the streets Thursday night and who represent the majority of this country. We've got to stop trying to be these beautiful people because if you look at the Hasbara out there, that's where it's going. Moving on, we're in Chodesh Iyar and it's the month of uh, Yom Atzmaut and Yom Zikaron, Independence Day, Memorial Day. It's like the patriotic month for us. And I want to talk about two Jewish heroes, one from the Etzel and one from the Lehi which were two underground movements in the pre-state days, because they died on ER during this month. One of them was 19-year-old Mayor Feinstein. Mayor Feinstein was captured by the British. He was driving the getaway car when the Irgun, that's the underground movement he was part of, they blew up the Jerusalem train station. Feinstein's arm had been amputated after being shot when he left the train station. So he's got one arm and he's going to go to jail now the next in line to go to the gallows. And I wanted to bring some of the words he spoke at his trial before the British judges who were to condemn him to death. He basically says to them, hey, look, you can't frighten us anymore with all these hangings. We just went through a Holocaust and we have nothing to lose. The fact that we somehow survived the Holocaust and our Jewish brothers didn't, that's enough to give us the motivation to do whatever we have to do because because we're no better than our martyred brothers who perished. So you can't deter us with the gallows. Anyway, here is some of the speech of Mayor Feinstein. Hashem yikom domo. Officers of the invading armies, in your stupid wickedness, you assume that by this means you will succeed in breaking the spirit of our people, the people to whom the whole country has become a gallows? You are mistaken. How blind are you, British tyrants? Have you not learned yet who you are fighting in this struggle? Do you believe we have to be frightened by death, we who for years Heard the rattle of the trucks that bore our brothers, our parents, the best of our people, to a slaughter that had no precedent in history? We, who asked and ask ourselves every day, how are we better than they, than the millions of our brothers? In what lies our virtue? For we could have been among them in the days of fear and in the moments that came before death. To these recurring questions, that is the question, why did God make it that we should survive the Holocaust and not the rest of our brothers? So to these recurring questions, Our conscience makes our reply. We were not spared in order to live in slavery and depression and to wait some new Treblinka. We were spared in order to ensure life and freedom and honor for ourselves, for our people, for our children and our children's children. We were spared in order that there should be no repetition of what happened there and what is likely to happen here under your rule, the rule of treachery, the rule of blood. That is why we shall not be frightened. And if you fail to understand this phenomenon of a nation that has nothing to lose but the chains of its slavery, then you have been stricken by blindness in order to be removed from the stage of history from which providence removes all those who rise against the eternal people to destroy it. Assyria and Babylon, Athens, Rome, Spain, Germany preceded you and you will follow them. This is what I wanted to tell you British officers, you and those who sent you. So that's just a small part of Mayor Feinstein's speech in front of the British court in Jerusalem who sentenced him to death. Now, he was joined in the jail cell by, an, by another young man, 20-year-old Moshe Barazani. Moshe Barazani was from the Lechi, not the Etzel, and he had been sentenced to death also for carrying a hand grenade. His trial lasted 90 minutes. So Barazani and Feinstein, they're in the same cell. They're sitting in the Russian compound in Jerusalem, awaiting the day of their hanging, Up to now, the British had been hanging the underground fighters in the city of Akko. They had not hung anybody in Jerusalem, but they were thinking about doing it to Barazzani and Feinstein to hang them in Jerusalem. And there was an idea that was in the air for a while amongst the underground people about the concept of perishing with the Philistines. That is, if we're going to get hung, let's take some Philistines down with us. So how are they going to do that? Well, the Argunists were able to make a grenade out of an orange That is, they covered the grenade with orange peels and they smuggled it into the prison, which wasn't such a simple task. What they did was they began sending baskets of fruits to death row to get the authorities accustomed to a lot of traffic in citrus fruits. And Berizani and Feinstein had a hefty stock of fruit in their cell. And one day two grenades were added to it. And their plan was that when they were brought to the gallows to detonate the grenade right before they were hung. And that way, even though they would die, they would also be able to kill the executioner and some other British who might be hanging around there. That's why it was called Operation Samson, that you may go down, but you're going to take others with you. So that was the plan. And so the night before the execution, with no prior warning, the British authorities called Rabbi Jacob Goldman to recite prayers with the two fighters. And on entering the cell, Rabbi Goldman was surprised to find the two young men who had only hours ago told they're going to be hung next morning. they were in a cheery mood. They told jokes, they sang, and the two boys did at one point ask about what's the Jewish view of suicide because they knew suicide was forbidden. But in certain cases, we know it is allowed. Like we know, of course, in the story of Masada, they were considered martyrs and heroes. And King Saul, he fell on his sword so as not to be desecrated by the Philistines. And and of course, Samson, when he took the house down, he knew he was going to die. So there are situations where suicide is not forbidden. Anyway, the rabbi had no idea what they were referring to Why they were asking this question. The rabbi assumed that they were referring to their refusal to appeal their sentences since they had not recognized the right of a British court and everything to judge them. That's what he thought they meant. Anyway, this rabbi Goldman, he told them that he's coming back tomorrow. He's going to be with them. He could not bear the thought of the two being hanged alone with the enemy and he promised to return in the morning. They failed to dissuade him and they had to alter their plan. They couldn't carry out the plan because they would have blown up Rabbi Goldman. So what did they do? If they couldn't die a death of Shimshon, they could at least show that as Jews, they held their fate in their own hands. They would not let the British hang Jews in Jerusalem. It had never happened yet. They would die as the Jews had died at Masada. So after the rabbi left, Moshe Barazani, Sephardi Jew from the Lechi, Mare Feinstein, Ashkenazi Jew from the Etzel, they hugged each other. They placed a grenade between their hearts. And with a cigarette, Barazani lit the fuse. A giant explosion is heard in the Russian compound. The bodies of Moshe Barazani and Mir Feinstein are on the floor, drenched in blood. Their souls, they go right to heaven, to a place that's reserved for heroes like this. And you know, if you go to the Russian compound today, it's still a jail and a police station. There's a little museum there. And you can see the cell where Moshe Barazani and Moshe Feinstein blew themselves up. You can still see the marks in the wall of the grenade. And know that in the end, the British were rooted out of Palestine because of this kind of misery and nefesh, because of the deeds of the Irgun and the Lehi, because the blowing up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, the hanging of the British sergeants, the raid on the fortress of Akko. These are the events, this terror, it was called terror by terrorists. The state of Israel came into being because of this. The state of Israel doesn't come into being because the Balfour Declaration or some UN vote. It was this, it was from the efforts of a handful of devoted, daring Jews who were willing to take down the powerful British Empire. It was the blood and fire of the Ergun and the Lechi that brought Israel into being and that blew the British out of the Holy Land. It was because of Jews like Mera Feinstein and Moshe Barazani that we could sit in comfort today and enjoy a Jewish state. Moving on to the Torah portion we just read, this Shabbat's Pasha was Pashat Aharei Mot Kiddushim, and Pashad Kedushim opens like this. And Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Daber to you. Speak to all of the people of Israel and tell them, Kedushim to you, be holy. Ki Kedosh ani Hashem For I, your God, am holy. And it really is a different kind of commandment that you usually get. What do you mean, Kedushim to you, be holy? It's such a general commandment. It's not like most of the commandments where we have this very specific and exact situation, shake a lulav, eat matzah on Pesach, don't work on Shabbat. All those mitzvahs have very specific rules and regulations. What kind of work is forbidden on Shabbat? How much matzah you're supposed to eat? When do you do it? How do you do it? But here it just says, be holy. It doesn't tell you how many units of holy you have to be, when you have to be holy. Just this general admonition, kiddushim you. And the rabbis teach that being holy is being separate, separate from the nations, Prushim, to be distinct. It's about Havdalah. It's all about Havdalah, to separate yourself from the nations. That's what kadosh really means. Like when you marry somebody, it's called a Kiddushin, which comes from the word kadosh because you are just for each other, nobody else, special, separated from everybody else. That's Kiddushin. What does the groom say at the wedding? What does the Chatan say? Hare at li which means I set you aside at mekudeshetli. I sanctify you. I set you aside. I separate you from all the girls of the world. Kedushah is separation and sanctity. He's just for her and she is just for him. Special and separate. That's Kedushin. Kedushin is havdalah, to differentiate. That's what the Jews is every Saturday night after Shabbos. L'havdil ben kodesh l'chol, ben ben to distinguish between the holy and the profane, light and darkness, Yisrael v'amim, Israel and the nations. We're holy and we have to be separate. And this is appropriate because this point is exactly where the debate lies between us and them. The whole judicial reform debate, it's really a debate about Kedusha and Avdalah because when they proclaim democracy, they're not talking about majority rule. If that was the case, the majority clearly voted for a right-wing government. and There'd be no argument. But for them, democracy, it means much more. It's the values of democracy that they hold so dear to them. Freedom, live and let live, no religious coercion, and most of all, most of all, equality. We're all equal. We're all human beings. There's no Avdalah. There's no Kedushah. And if you say there is, you're a racist. Well, the Holy Torah doesn't think so. And of course, the Torah is the source of all truth. And the Torah says like this in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, for you are a holy people unto the Lord and God has chosen you to be a special people above all peoples that are upon the face of the earth. And so Jewish separation and differentiation, it's essential and it's sacred. That's how Judaism sees it. Now take the secularists who march against this government. For them, this is frightening racism. For them to insist upon cleaving to an ethnic or national concept that ensures the separation of Jews from other human beings? That is the ultimate racism. And it's kind of funny because in the days of Rabbi Kahana, they used to call him a racist. Of all the things to call him, a racist. What did that have to do with him wanting to throw out the Arabs? I mean, you could call it a lot of things, but what do you mean racist? But for them, anything too Jewish, too much Jewishness, distinction, separation, Kedusha, that's racism. And so now you see, there really is no bridging the gap. Torah Judaism and Western democracy, they're just not compatible, no matter how we try to reconcile it. I mean, just give some examples. The liberal West speaks about the rule of democracy or the authority of the majority. Judaism speaks of the divine truth that's immutable and not subject to the ballot box. Democracy speaks of the absolute equality of all peoples. Judaism, as we said, speaks of the chosenness of the Jew from above all the people of the special an exclusive relationship between God and Israel. Western democracy speaks about subjective truth that no one is able to claim it to know what is absolute truth. Judaism, on the other hand, says there is objective truth and that truth is known and it's in the Torah that was given at Sinai. I mean, you can't bridge these gaps Western democracy, it's all about the freedom and the right of all peoples to live their lives as they see fit, as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? While Judaism declares that there's no such thing as victimless crimes, since the sinner becomes himself a victim, and the very act of not following God's law will bring down punishment and harm to all. So there is no living that live in Judaism. According to Western democracy, it's all about tolerance and respect everybody and the obligation to respect all views, no matter what. And so the homosexual, that's okay. The prostitute, the drug addict, the transgender, LGBT, l whatever the heck that is, it's all good because you got to be tolerant. Everyone can live the life that they want to. But for Judaism, that's not an option, okay? It's not how it works in Judaism. And so I can go on and on explaining the differences between the, between the Torah of the Jew and the civilization of the Gentile. But you get the point. Kiddushim to you, be holy. That's not a slogan. That's something that encapsulates the whole essence of Judaism. This is like the sweeping mitzvah of them all. All the other mitzvahs that you do are supposed to make you holy. And again, holy means separate, distinct, chosen. I wanted to bring a commentary by Professor Yisrael Eldad also on this verse, Kiddushim to you. How does the pasha open up? It goes like this. And Hashem spoke to Moses saying, speak to the entire assembly of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for holy am I, Hashem, your God. So he says to speak, look, call a Yisrael to all the entire assembly of Israel. Now that's unusual because usually it doesn't say that. Usually it says the bear al Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel. Here it's different. Here it says, speak unto the entire assembly, call a Yisrael. You shall all be holy. So all of us Jews are commanded to be holy. And so Professor Yisrael Eldad, he compares that to the Christian religion. In the Christian religion, being holy, it's reserved, you know, for the priests, the monks, those who abstain from marital relations and live up in the mountains somewhere. Those are the holy ones. It's not for everybody. Just a select few. They're the holy men and they can atone for the sins and the crimes of everybody else. And that's what they say about Jesus. He carries upon himself all our sins. And they take a verse from Isaiah, which they say is talking about Jesus, that he bore our sins and our suffering. He's the suffering servant who atones for our sins. It's all on him. We can sin, we can loot, and we'll put it on him. So for us, the Jews, it says, Kirushimtiu, to you, be holy. For the Christians, it's poshim to you. You can be criminals if you want, be sinners. Don't worry, poshim to you. Be sinners. Why? Because you have someone to atone for you. And if we're on the subject of Christianity, I wanted to bring a couple of minutes of Rabbi Kahana back in 1986. He was on the Larry King show. You know, Larry King had that radio talk show nationwide. And he had like a two-hour interview with Rabbi Kahana. It was real classic. And you know that in these shows after the interview... They take phone calls and Rabbi Kahana has to answer these phone calls. And you have two very interesting calls in a row. The first call you're going to hear is somebody talking about Christianity and he wants the Jews to believe in Jesus. And he brings a verse in Isaiah, which I previously mentioned. And the next call is somebody talks about using the name of Hashem. You know, Hashem has a name, Yudke Vavke, which Jews don't pronounce. And she asks this question about the usage of this name, the name of Hashem. And then Larry King himself is going to chime in on the issue. And and we'll see very quickly how Rabbi Kahana just settles it. So I'm going to play for now from the Larry King show. Rabbi Kahana sitting in the studio, taking some phone calls from a couple of kooks. To uh, Paducah, Kentucky.
0: Hello. Yes. Rabbi, assuming that you are a theologian in your holy writings, in reference to uh, Isaiah 53, Yes. Uh, Why does that not pertain to Christ? And, and second question, going aside or going beyond the fact that, that we believe in a uh, second coming of the Messiah and uh, you see the Messiah as coming for the first time, what difference is to uh, Isaiah, like in uh, chapter 59, chapter 49, and, and 30 and 32, uh, is a difference in a, a millennium reign or a setting up of uh, the Messiah's kingdom on earth? One, uh, the chapter on the servant, on the um, servant in chapter fifty-three, a suffering servant chapter, that applies to Israel, the people of Israel, and not to, uh, not to uh, Jesus. That 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 is Jewish, Jewish teachings. Uh, the Jews believe that the Messiah has not come come yet, and that he will come, and that he will bring God's law Torah law upon upon earth what bothers me is that why don't, why don't you leave us alone you have so much work to do among Christians to make them decent Christians leave Jews alone do I bother you I'm busy making Jews good, good Jews why don't why don't you just make Christians good Christians and let us live happily ever ever after with respect and tolerance one onto the other pleasant in California hello hi um, I've been doing a little studying of the Bible, and um, according to what I've learned, it says that God is just a title, but that there is a personal name of God, and that it was written over 7,000 times in the Bible. And it's represented by four letters, four Hebrew letters. And it said that with the superstition, they stopped using the name. Now, I was wondering if you could tell me... Um, Uh, What, you know, when did they start discontinuing the use of His name? Yahweh, you mean? Yeah, or Jehovah, and why did they stop uh, using His name? First of all, they, it didn't stop, it didn't start. The uh, Jews, out of a deep respect and awe, did not use God's personal name ever, except in the Holy Temple on the holiest day of the year. That was the only time that it was ever used. So and nothing, tradition, nothing not has ever the law, changed. That tradition? It's the law. It's a law. God didn't want his own name used. I don't believe that you would use, you would call your father by his first name. No. It's the same concept here.
1: That was Rabbi Kahana on the Larry King Show. He sure left Larry King speechless on that one. But that was the greatness of the rabbi. He knew what to say and he said it right every time. That's it for me. I'll be back next week. Don't forget to tune into Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast in the Bible, the greatest book ever written because Hashem was the author. So you can Google Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes and and for authentic Bible study with Jewish sources, you can tune into that and I'll be back next week.